You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 68, our first episode of 2015. Happy New Year, everyone. And as we start the new year, we have some kind of good news. In several states across the country, including Delaware, Illinois, Minnesota, West Virginia, and several cities, workers are getting extra protections uh, if they are pregnant and want to request special reasonable accommodations at work, which basically means that you have a little bit more protection against employment discrimination when you are both ready and willing uh, and able to work um, while you are pregnant and your boss might have some misgivings about that. Basically, these laws say you can request a reasonable accommodation and the burden of proof is on your employer rather than on you for the employer to prove that it poses an undue hardship on business. And so while there are still caveats in terms of who it applies to and some barriers of proof, um, it does greatly enhance a worker's power to uh, demand that they get um, special accommodations at work. And this is especially important because it builds on existing federal protections uh, for pregnant workers, which have so far proven inadequate because they contain giant loopholes that allow workers to get around providing special accommodations or even barring them from forcing them off the job because they're pregnant, um, because they can get around the qualifications that say that someone is temporarily disabled. There's now pending federal legislation that would uh, amend that law um, and amend those regulations so that it is easier for pregnant workers to qualify for temporary disability insurance and other provisions like that. But until then, it's really up to states and localities to keep on voting these protections in either at the ballot box or through their legislatures. Another issue is uh, paid sick days policies. And so um, right now, California and several cities have adopted paid sick days policies, which allow uh, working poor households to finally qualify for uh, paid leave time. And so now that they can now they can tend to their uh, family's medical needs without having to sacrifice income. Unfortunately, however, it's still a long slog in terms of the nationwide picture. As the National Partnership for Women and Families reports, nearly four in 10 private sector workers nationwide can't earn paid sick days. And so far, it's just a piecemeal of regulations like that. So stay tuned for more. Always more. Meanwhile, you didn't think we were going to keep up the good news, did you? Um, No. Um, Another thing that's happening this year is, according to a new report from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, despite the fact that unemployment remains high, large number of people are in insecure part-time work when they'd prefer full-time, states are cutting back on eligibility for the SNAP program, otherwise known as food stamps, and reinstituting work requirements, potentially throwing, oh, a million people off of their benefits. After the financial crisis, of course, caused a major recession, many states were allowed waivers from the Federal Agriculture Department, which administers the food stamp program, from the work requirements that demand 20 hours of work per week for what they call an able-bodied adult without dependents. You can also get food stamps if you're in a work fair program, or you can get them for a brief period of time if you are unemployed. But even though 36 states continue to have high enough sustained unemployment to keep qualifying for waivers, a bunch of right-wing governors, possibly about 17 of them, have decided that people just need to starve more and that will clearly motivate them to find those non-existent jobs. 
Maine's Paul LePage, who likes to trumpet his own bootstrap rise to fame, but as one Maine resident told me this fall, has no sympathy for others who live in poverty, decided that it was time to stop giving handouts. These work requirements, in essence, make sure that food stamps function as a subsidy for low-wage employers. If the only people eligible for food stamps are already people who are working 20 hours or more per week, it's going to be employers like Walmart, which receives a big chunk of those food stamp dollars right back in sales, according to the company's own records, who reap the benefits of state-subsidized workers. If you were perhaps holding out for a better job than a minimum wage one, but you stand to lose your benefits, well, now you might be desperate enough to take any job out there and forget about being demanding while at work. Meanwhile, if you're unemployed or your boss cuts your hours back below 20 hours a week, a common situation for today's low-wage workforce, which we've talked about a lot on this program, you're screwed. This is, of course, on top of lots of other recent cuts to the food stamp program, and there are six billion more in expected cuts coming soon. Isn't that nice? Well, I heard Walmart's hiring, though, so, you know, if you are, if you are starving, uh, you get to spend your you food stamp. You cannot see the face I'm making. No, you, can't, you get to spend your income and food stamp dollars back at Walmart. Exactly. Right. Full circle. So, over on the other side of the Atlantic, um, there actually is a little bit of good news, or at least some promising news, on the uh, political front. The Greek uh, insurgent left political party, Syriza, now looks poised to actually seize control of the presidency. Um, if all goes as the polls are indicating right now, there's a very good chance that um, the latest uh, failure to uh, put together a, a unity government will trigger elections, which will then poise Syriza to head for a victory at the polls. So what was once a fringe leftist party has been catapulted by the misery of austerity to the forefront of Greek politics. And they are now one of the main forces challenging uh, not just the austerity measures that have been imposed on Greece, but the entire Troika system, which has, as you well know, uh, imposed misery um, across Europe, namely the uh, relatively poor countries of the Eurozone concentrated in southern Europe. Uh, what um, you know, institutions like the IMF and many uh, Eurozone policymakers are fearing right now is that if uh, Syriza does come to power, as is predicted, um, then that might actually lead to a crisis in the Eurozone, perhaps even a so-called Grexit, a Greek exit from the Euro. And that could have a domino effect of GASP pushing other countries to leave the Eurozone as well. Um, and that would plunge the Eurozone further into crisis. What some of these critics also neglect to recognize is that for Greeks, it frankly can't get any worse. So all the talk of uh, financial crisis um, might be falling on deaf ears for a number of Greeks right now because they have been so uh, completely immiserated by the last few years under the existing centrist government that they're really willing to try anything. And if Syriza is offering them an alternative to the status quo, then, you know, if it's a matter of pick your point, and they might as well go full crisis mode on this and see where it takes them. Having played poker with a couple of guys from Syriza this fall, I think they'll do a great job governing. Right. They certainly were good at bluffing. Right. <laughs> They're willing to take some <laughs> Which gambles. Which will be very important in dealing with the Eurozone. Yes. Uh, they can bluff me, they can bluff Angela Merkel. Yeah. Well, that's probably not true. <laughs> but we'll see. In any case, we wish them luck. More depressing news, because I love bringing you depressing oh, news, We're guys. like yin and yang today. Oh, uh, Yes. So I'm bringing you news from a, a BuzzFeed news analysis that has found in recent years the risk of dying on the job has been growing for Latino construction workers at rates that far outstrip the rest of the industry. 
Um, this report analyzes numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and found that the fatality rate among Latino construction workers went up almost 20 percent between 2010, which was the bottom, of course, of the housing crash, and 2013. What's more, during that time, the fatality rate among all construction workers went up slightly, but Latino workers account for all of that increase. Fatalities among other construction workers actually went down slightly in that same time period. This is, it is probably not surprising to many of you listening, most likely because Latino immigrant workers, many of whom are undocumented, are concentrated in non-union jobs with small contractors who often skirt legality in all sorts of ways. Uh, studies have found that federal inspections, of which there are, of course, not very many because OSHA is woefully, woefully, woefully understaffed, regularly find violations among these small contractors. Non-union workers already, of course, have fewer ways to seek recourse on the job, and undocumented workers may labor in fear of deportation if they complain about such unsafe conditions. And, of course, even when contractors do get held liable for the shoddy conditions that they create for their workers... The BuzzFeed story gives us a fun example of what might happen to those employers. Slap on the wrist doesn't do this justice. One employer who pled guilty to one count of negligent homicide, he had been indicted for more than one, quote, did not serve his sentence all at once. Instead, he would serve 16 weekends in jail intermittently, checking himself in at 9 a.m. on Saturdays and going back home at 6 p.m. on Sundays. He was also fined $5,000. And his conviction was the first time in recent history that a Staten Island contractor was found criminally liable for the death of a worker. So, this just underscores the reality that dangerous jobs and the different people who do them are not equally valued in the current system. And on that note... Well, as you might recall, uh, we were discussing uh, Black Lives Matter and the movements against police brutality um, at the end of the year. And as we move into 2015, we are struck by the interesting events that have been going on surrounding the New York Police Department Union, the uh, Patrolman's Benevolent Association mainly, uh, around uh, what appears to be a job action uh, involving the New York City police force and what it means for the communities that they police. So we invited on a, a, a professor from the City University of New York, who also happens to be my advisor at the Graduate Center. Uh, it's Joshua B. Freeman. He is a professor at uh, CUNY Graduate Center and Queens College, and he is the author of several books about New York City labor history, including Working Class New York, Life and Labor Since World War Two and uh, Audacious Democracy, Labor Intellectuals, and the Social Renewal of America. So to start with, um, can you give us a little bit of history on police unions? Um, since the police were often part of the strike-breaking force and otherwise involved in opposing labor actions, when and how did police start to unionize? Well, you know, there were police organizations that go all the way back to the 19th century. I, I wouldn't call them unions exactly in the modern sense, uh, but these were often uh, benevolent associations, fraternal associations of one sort or another that were designed to do what a lot of early labor groups were did, you know, which is provide benefits, uh, burial benefits, other kinds of, of, of things like that. Uh, but many of them also began to get involved in lobbying uh, uh, for individual officers, for laws relevant, um, so that they were multi-purpose organizations. In the case, for example, of New York City, the 
uh, current organization, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, is well over 100 years old. It, it started in 1894. Now, in the modern sense of unions, you know, collective bargaining organizations with contracts, uh, that's generally a much more recent history. Here in New York, uh, it's only since 1964 that you've had uh, the PBA sort of convert into what we would think of today as a union in the sense of a group that bargains a contract. So it's a long history, but it's not uh, one that goes directly into what we think of as police unions in the modern sense. Mm -hmm. um, what about the NYPD specifically? Um, I understand that, you know, it emerged in the wake of the Civil War. Um, and like you said, it started out as more of a fraternal order and then kind of spent much of its history as more of a political pressure group. Can you talk about how it fits into the overall political landscape in New York, especially with respect to maybe other kind of like fraternal organizations that can date back to an earlier era in the city? Sure. I, I think, you know, in New York and a lot of the East Coast and some of the Midwest cities, the the police groups, the, the officers groups, often had pretty strong ties to the local political machines. And one, you know, common bound in many cases was, was uh, ethnicity, uh, Police work in, in New York and Boston, a lot of other cities was something that the Irish in particular did. Uh, a lot of the local political machines also were pretty heavily Irish, Tammany Hall in New York. So there was often a linkage, uh, and, and uh, there were multiple ties, you know. Police uh, sometimes helped out with elections. There was a lot of corruption and kickbacks through the police, also to the political party. So, you know, they were embedded, uh, and part of that was also being advocates uh, with the political establishment uh, for their members. And, you know, by the way, a lot of civil service groups, which today are unions, thought that way. So this is not, you know, kind of unique to the police. But it did become more involved in formal uh, lawmaking. For example, uh, the current system that the police use uh, in New York and almost every place with three shifts, that was actually something that was won by the uh, PBA back in the World War I era through lobbying of the state legislature. It was actually a state law. There used to be two 12-hour shifts. So you know, from fairly early on, uh, there was a political function that, that – uh, the PBA and a lot of other police groups had too. Right, right. Um, back in the days when, when politics was a more fluid term in, in New York City, I guess. Um, so in the post-war era, I guess, you know, I, I guess you could say um, with the advent of what we know is like the contemporary civil service system, um, how did some of those reforms, especially things like Taft-Hartley or the Taylor Law in New York, um, affect how the police union works and some constraints on some of the things they can do as a labor organization. Well, actually, neither uh, Taft-Hartley nor the Taylor Law really had a lot of impact huh. because uh, Taft-Hartley is federal law, and it doesn't really cover civil service workers, local state civil service workers, including police. And there really was no controlling law in New York State in the immediate post-World War II period. And in New York City, as a result of you know some 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 militant action and a lot of political pressure, uh, the local government slowly moved towards recognizing uh, municipal worker unions as representative groups, eventually as collective bargaining groups, and uh, ultimately in the 1960s began signing exclusive representation contracts with some of them, and that included the PBA. 
which uh, under Robert Wagner in the last years of his administration did get recognized as, as a bargaining group. But Taylor Law came in a little bit later, not much later, but just after this in response to the big uh, transit strike in 1966. And it was a state law that, that sort of regularized statewide the rules uh, for public employees and, of course, included uh, penalties for job actions by public workers, including police. Uh, so uh, for police, just like transit workers or teachers, going on strike in New York State is illegal. So uh, the PBA evolved before the Taylor Law, but today it's covered by it. Mm -hmm. So police unions in general sort of have a strange relationship to the broader labor movement. Even sort of similar occupations like correctional officers and security guards are often a little bit more integrated into the rest of the labor movement. Our members of unions like SEIU and AFSCME. Yeah, no, I think there's a long history of it. I mean, on one hand, the police were often, you know, in the 19th century and the 20th century, too, you know, the agents of repression for organized labor. Uh, they were used to break strikes, to beat up strikers, to infiltrate unions. So many unionists, you know, uh, were very uh, loath to think of a policeman as, as part of labor or to admit police groups into organized labor. And that attitude, by the way, continues, although usually pretty quietly, uh, among some unionists to this day. Often, by the way, fairly conservative, you know, building trades types who know that long history, you know. On the other hand, there have been moments, you know, when, when the police uh, uh, have, have been swept up in a kind of sense of solidarity with the rest of labor and been welcomed. I think the most famous example of this was 1919 during the great strike wave, you know, that swept across America in, in, in some ways the greatest strike wave we've ever experienced. And very famously in Boston, where there was a kind of fraternal organization of policemen, but not a direct connection to the labor movement, uh, they sought to affiliate with the AFL. The AFL was willing to do that. Uh, and in response, the governor of Massachusetts uh, fired 19 of the, uh, was suspended 19 of the labor activists in the police force. Uh, and then the police went on strike in a strike supported by the rest of the labor movement and crushed by Calvin Coolidge. Uh, and it was really in the course of that strike that the notion that public employees were different than other workers in that they uh, threatened the sovereignty of the state if they went on strike. It was in that strike that that idea was really developed. And of course, it lives with us to this day. So it's not uh, a simple story. Uh, there have been moments of, of solidarity, but I think as you allude to, you know, moments when, when the police are not really accepted by either side is just like other workers. Yeah, it's, it's often sort of big news when police unions are targeted by right-wing union busters. I'm thinking about, you know, one of the reasons that the Ohio workers were successful in 2011 pushing back on the same anti-union bill that succeeded in Wisconsin was that the police and firefighters were included there. They were excluded right. in Wisconsin. Um, they were excluded in Wisconsin. And I think that, that, that the powers that be, yeah. you know, have often fairly shrewdly tried to separate right. the uniform forces from the rest of labor by having different provisions for them. And there are a number of states and localities where police and sometimes firefighters 
are dealt with differently. So yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Now, from a legal point of view, that's not true in New York City, New York State. Uh, politically, though, sometimes it's been true. You know, I mean, uh, I think uh, there have been moments when, when, for example, during the fiscal crisis, when the PBA tried to reach out, actually, to conservative politicians yeah. to get itself uh, dealt with differently. It actually didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you saw you saw Giuliani even before he was mayor, you know, trying to bond with the PBA. So 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 the, you sometimes see that kind of alliance. But but these things are also shifting. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not permanent. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because we see um, these days uh, places like the New York Post that has never met a union other than a police union that it liked suddenly in favor of job action. Yeah, there's a kind of funny reversal going on right now in New York because the, the police are doing things that a lot of, you know, kind of left-wing unions kind of in other contexts are always calling for, you know, great deal of solidarity, a great deal of projecting of values. You know, you, this is not economism that the PPA is, you know, uh, 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 mobilizing around, but, but, but a certain worldview, you know, and they're very militant. I mean, I, you know, it certainly looks like there's a, a slowdown going on in New York City right now, and uh, if that is the case, it's, it's a violation of the Taylor Law, you know, and most unions in New York are very reluctant to break the Taylor Law. I don't know if the unions are directly involved, but the uh, rank and file uh, seem on their own to be pulling off a job action. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, on one hand, the police are often positioned politically as very conservative, and yet in other ways, you know, they, they're displaying a lot of the attributes that, that the left is always calling on the rest of the union movement to adopt. Yeah. Not to mention doing things that are actually quite popular with the public, unfortunately, perhaps, like just not giving tickets or summonses and, you know. Well, yes, this is a very funny case. You're absolutely right. Of course, you know, if violence breaks out, it may be a different story. There's a big uh, police strike, for example, in Montreal in the 1970s, and there was actually a rash of bank robberies and so forth, and uh, they lost a lot of public support pretty quickly as a result. Uh, so you could imagine this uh, turning on a dime, depending upon what happens. But for the moment, I think less police in, in the eyes of a lot of New Yorkers is, is not such a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, banking on the, the civility of today's New York, I guess. But So going back to a less civilized time in New York, I, I guess, um, I, I, you know, I grew up in New York, and I, I guess my life kind of spans the arc from the, you know, one of the highest uh, crime periods of crime uh, in in recent memory to you know the post Bloomberg post Giuliani era and I, I can't one constant has always been that um, the NYPD has always been more or less at odds with communities of color and uh, there's been just pervasive racial strife um, since the 80s and and I was wondering if you know can we ever look back at a time in history when when there was not such a a racial divide or such racial tensions surrounding the uh, the idea of policing in New York City? Or... Yeah, I think that is a complicated question. I think the simple answer is uh, there's a long history of police brutality and insensitivity towards uh, minorities, people of color in particular, and protest against that. And you can see that going all the way back to the 19th century and continuing through the 20th and into the 21st. Um, However, communities of color also have been the sites of very high crime rates and the beneficiaries, the disproportionate beneficiaries in the reduction in crime. So I think the attitude from the community towards police and policing is complicated. You know, there have certainly been periods of time of demands for more policing 
uh, in the, for example, African-American community. You know, uh, there's been some recent work on, on, for example, the history of the Rockefeller drug laws. It shows there was actually a lot of support in, in, uh, in the middle class black community for increased policing against uh, the violence that uh, drugs were bringing into those communities. Um, and, and uh, you know, there was not uniform opposition by any means during, for example, the Giuliani years to the idea of a more robust police presence in communities if it was going to bring down crime. So I think it's the way in which communities are being policed, uh, the uh, arbitrariness often, uh, the indifference. And, you know, again, it's not simply a racial issue also. You know, in many times the police are non-New York City residents, you know, uh, or not residents of the neighborhoods they patrol. They are not responsible in their daily lives for their activities with their neighbors uh, the way pre maybe small-town police might be. So I, th- I think it's a complicated story. There's, there's a long history of tension. But on the other hand, you know, I think most working people of, of all backgrounds benefit from order, you know, as well as sometimes are critical yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on that double-edged sword, I mean, I think um, the NYPD has, as well as many other city police forces, have been making efforts to uh, you know, diversify, to recruit more uh, minority members and, and women and, and project a more... Um, I guess, like demographically diverse um, face, I guess, to the public. Has the union generally, uh, how, how have they reacted to, to these kinds of trends or have they been pushing them in some ways? Yeah, I mean, hiring is primarily the function of the employer, you know, in which case the, the New York City, the, the police brass. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of direct input into who gets hired. There can be a cultural tone that's set, you know, and and, and, and the Police organizations, you know, uh, can contribute to that. They can encourage. They can discourage. I don't think we've seen resistance towards the diversification of the police force from the current uh, PBA. And, you know, after all, the leadership's been reelected multiple times, so it's not like they're wildly unpopular. On the other hand, I, I would say that in the very recent events, I wonder how this is being received uh, by all the police. I mean, after all, uh, as there was a, a very good piece written uh, a couple of days ago by Roger Toussaint, the former head of Local 100 CWU, and he said, "Look, you know, a lot of the members of the PBA have uh, have children and uncles and uh, friends who, who who look like Eric Garner, you know, and um, they got to be just as concerned about what happens to to their sons, you know, on the street uh, when they're stopped as everyone else." and uh, I, I, I'm not so sure that PBA has leadership has fully taken into account in that sense how much its own membership has changed. I mean, you know, I mean, after all, who, who are the two policemen that die? One's named Ramos and one's named Lou. This is not the police force of, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and uh, the PBA, of course, has been as equally respectful of of, of those officers as officers who who die on duty in earlier eras, but. Um, has it fully acclimated to the changes in the demography of the police force? I'm not sure. Well, and it's kind of interesting that, you know, when we talk about the PBA being respectful to those officers, the families of those officers had asked Bill de Blasio to appear at their funerals, and then the PBA, you know, there were a large portion of the officers who were there in any case, you know, deliberately turned their back on the mayor. So it, it seems to be a question of, is that respectful or is it politically useful to them right now? 
Yeah, and I, you know, I do. Do I personally think it's respectful? No. Uh, do I think that it's respectful for officers who come from other cities and other states that come to New York and turn the back on our mayor? No. You know, what's its political impact? Well, I don't know yet. I, I think that remains to be seen. Um, uh, it led the New York Times to write about as strong uh, editorials as I've ever seen it run critical of the police. They were quite remarkable. Um, what the public thinks about this, you know, that is so hard to tell. So I, I think this hasn't fully played out yet, and, it, and it's hard to, to know how it will so go. I have sort of an interesting question that's been on my mind since I read Matt Taibbi's book, The Divide, where he talks about the, the upper classes getting away with uh, crimes with impunity and, and the rise in really extremely heavy policing of, you know, communities of color and the poor. Um, and he mentions very briefly in this book and sort of leaves it there that the rise of this sort of statistically driven policing, broken windows policing, happened at the same time as NYPD salaries were being cut back. And that a lot of this sort of stats driven, arrest count driven policing actually was welcomed as a way for the police to make overtime and to justify their overtime. I don't know if this is something you've heard before or anything that the union has said anything about, but it seems it's an interesting thing to think about when looking at the way the union has fought to preserve practices like stop and frisk and broken window policing. Well, you know, I think it might be a little unfair to say that this is simply a, a, a kind of uh, income boosting, you know, position on the point of, of view of labor. Because after all, you know, extensive overtime has been part of the equation of uh, police salaries for a long time, predating the kind of, you know, cops that type of stuff. Uh, and, you know, the idea that you arrest someone towards the end of your shift, so you have to take them down and book them and you end up doing overtime, that's been there forever, you know. And I also think that, you know, the police are driven by uh, – a certain set of notions about what it takes to protect the city. You know, I may not agree with a lot of them, but I, I think it's not fair to simply reduce those to, oh, yeah, it's, it's sort of self-serving in this fairly petty way of, of getting more overtime, you know, and that's why they might support this. There is a kind of ideology, you know, that a lot of police organizations and police officers have that, you know, has this kind of thin blue line idea, you know, of uh, – chaos lurking out there that needs to be contained that fits very nicely with this kind of broken windows idea, which is the kind of Harvard University version of that, right? You know, um, and so I, I think there may be more of an ideological convergence. Kind of reminds me of the politics surrounding the uh, the firefighters union and, um, you know, during their contract talks, they always bring out these issues of, um, you know, how dangerous the job is and, and you know, the I guess people might call it bit of like a sort of an ideological kind of hero complex. And on the other hand, you know, um, not everyone's job seems to entail running into burning buildings all day. So puts the public in a strange position. No, that is true. And, I, and you know, having once been rescued from a, an elevator stuck in a building that was smoking Ooh. by the New York City Fire Department, you know, to, to the day I go to the grave, I will be internally grateful for their bravery. Um, but, yeah, there are also a lot of other municipal workers who have jobs which have uh, 
uh, high levels of injury and uh, and risk. You know, sewer treatment plant workers, sanitation workers, you know, highway department workers, and and I th- I think the the problem maybe is not that we uh, pay attention to the dangers and the the losses in police and fire, but that we yeah. ignore the other ones. You know, that we so that there's some narrative that that highlights certain types right. of sacrifice, and and it's just makes other types of sacrifices yeah. completely invisible, you know, and I think that's where I would yeah, like to see I was, a change. I happened to just be crunching this number the other day, and nationally, you're more than twice as likely to be killed on the job as a sanitation worker than as a police officer. And of course, that's not a New York-specific stat, but... Absolutely, and of course, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, working in the street around car exhaust and all that heavy lifting, as well as, you know, Infection from, from from items in the garbage and being hit by cars. Yeah, it's, it that's a tough job, you know. And I, those guys don't get the you know. And now women alone, New York mostly guys, uh, don't get the recognition. Don't they, they call them New York's strongest or something? <laughs> or like should, New York's man. toughest, something Ooh. like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think they're trying, but uh, yeah. you know, uh, it's it, you know because there's a, a broader social narrative it, that about, you know, uh, sacrifice and bravery and, and order, you know, and they don't really quite fit into it in the heroic way that uh, some other civil servants do. It is interesting getting back to the, the NYPD and their current state of possibly being on a slowdown, because I'm, I'm looking back and sort of one of the things that we've, a lot of us have been digging up since this has gone on is other things that Pat Lynch has tried to boycott, which include Bruce Springsteen and, at one point, Rudy Giuliani. This particular NYPD union leadership has a history of pretty heated rhetoric. The NYPD in the last few decades has sort of a history of, you know, some some fairly dramatic action. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about, how this union sort of, as you were saying, became one of the most militant unions in the city, for better or for worse? You know, it's funny, I, I, you know, I, I, there has not been as much work on yeah. that as you'd think, but I think these unions have never been as bureaucratized as some of the other unions. And I think they more directly reflect a kind of day-to-day mutuality among these workers. And I think in this regard, police are a lot like uh, construction workers and certain other kinds of workers who face great dangers and whose safety and survival depends upon they're bonding with their coworkers, you know, and those groups tend to have enormous levels of solidarity and, uh, and, and also sometimes to be kind of insular, you know, inside outside kind of divide, you know, and, uh, I think you see that, you know, in the construction trade unions as, as well as in the police unions. So I think that the nature of the job itself was part of it. And then the structure of the union, uh, without these kind of big bureaucracies, I think is part of it. And, 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 you know, in this, tremendous kind of almost uh, guild-like identification with the job. It's familial. It's not just a place you go to work. I mean, Pat Lynch's son just graduated from the police academy, you know, next generation going forward. So um, so I, I think, think there's a lot of that. I mean, the other part of it, frankly, is I think that they can get away with things a lot of other workers can't. I mean, if you go back, for example, to the fiscal crisis, there were some extraordinarily violent demonstrations by police uh, where they blocked the Brooklyn Bridge, they threw trash, uh, things like that, you know, um, who's going to take them on? You know, uh, so there's a little bit of a sense of greater license that they have as well. 
And, you know, finally, I would add that, you know, you often see great military workers who, you know, to use a, a funny phrase in this context, but who are at the point of production, you know, whose job uh, uh, or their withdrawal of the labor has greater importance. I mean, if I don't show up in class, frankly, you know, life's going on, you know, right? But, but you know, there are some workers, you know, whether they, they keep electrical power plants going or they police the streets or they, they work in the emergency rooms in the hospitals, they're presence or absence makes a whole lot more difference. I think people who are aware of that role, a lot of dead transit workers, you know, often have a greater militance than workers who, who kind of know in their heart of hearts that, you know, yeah, you won't be missed for a while. And, and, and then, of course, you know, once you have that, it, it, it tends to become uh, self-replicating because you, you have a culture and, and, and a tradition of that. And you do see that in your, you see that, by the way, uh, in another group, which I often disagree with, which is the uh, corrections officers, you know, the Rikers Island guards who are tremendously uh, uh, militant and, and have great solidarity in defense of what they see as their interests. I, I don't always agree with the policies they pursue, but you have to admire uh, uh, how active they are as a group in defending themselves. Yeah, of course, I would say it does maybe perhaps cut both ways. For instance, you know, the presence of absence of, say, teacher labor in the the case of a teacher's strike, right, might provoke public backlash because people feel very invested in whether or not their kids can go to school the next day. And so, you know, in that case, uh, that can antagonize the public. But in the case of, say, the NYPD now with this current job action, um, you know, this is as close as maybe we're going to get to a day without police, and so far not all hell has broken loose. So, um. right. But you know, I think it represents. A, a, you know, it's interesting you brought up the teachers because it represents a, a, a challenge for I think uh, people to think through. You know, what is the role of unions? Because I think I'm a person who supports unions very strongly, and it's very rare I ever criticize a union. And yet, you know, I think we have to recognize sometimes the interest of a union and the interest of the society are not identical. We had those debates back in 1968 during the famous teacher strike, you know, which a lot of people thought of as uh, perhaps uh, racially divisive and hurting the community, you know. Um, But, you know, two years before or a year before that, actually, the PBA led the charge to defeat the uh, presence of civilians in the police review board. You know, um, uh, and again, we're seeing it today. So I think, you know, there are these moments like the one we're living through where the whole issue of labor power versus the needs of the whole society comes up. And often that comes up, you know, it's kind of glib right wing, you know, self-interested blather. But I think right now, you know, uh, we, we do need to think about that, you know, not just about police, but about, about, about all working people. After all, workers have rights and, and, and we need to respect them. They get the short stick usually. But on the other hand, their power can shape the whole society in ways which yeah, are not democratic. Especially when they're heavily armed. <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> you don't want to get into a fight with a guy with a gun. You know? That brings us, I guess, to the current moment. Um, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but uh, in terms of the current, whatever you want to call it, a work slowdown, a job action, I mean, do, you, do you see this as a demonstration of labor strength? I mean, you said that in terms of how um, they're going about 
seemingly uh, organizing it. it. It does seem rather uh, militant, perhaps impressively organized. So um, should, should we see this as a textbook labor action or, or do you feel like it's more of a maybe an ideological propagation or, or um, you know, straight out just kind of a gangster move? Well, I wouldn't call it a gangster move. I think it certainly is an impressive example of working people collectively, uh, you know, making a kind of statement uh, through a job action. Right now, it's, you know, a, a kind of statement of, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know what you call expressive politics. I'm not sure what the demand here is, you know, uh, but it seems to reflect the uh, distaste for the way de Blasio has uh, handle policing issues, you know, and maybe an effort to pressure him. Um, uh, so in that sense, it's a very impressive display. Now, will it be effective? That's another issue, you know. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get what those who are participating want. Uh, I don't think this is thing has played out yet. And I think if it continues much longer, uh, the pressure to act on the police department, on the mayor, is going to get, you know, greater and greater. So uh, where this is leading, we don't know yet. One last sort of tangent from that, but um, because of this latest, uh, the assault on a transit worker by an apparent off-duty police officer, um, we've been kind of wondering if the uh, if other New York unions were going to break with the NYPD on this subject. Um, there was already tension when the UFT, for instance, backed the um, Eric Garner Solidarity March um, several months ago. Do you think that we'll see other city unions, whether public sector or not, speak out in this is case? There's so far been a tremendous reluctance. You know, it's really striking that no uh, incumbent leader of a major union has made any kind of public statement critical of Pat Lynch or PBA or the way the officers conducted themselves in the presence of the mayor. Uh, that's been a resounding silence. Um, I have seen two very good statements by former labor leaders, Roger Toussaint and uh, Jonathan Tussini. Um, but the fact that they're former labor leaders, you know, uh, I think is kind of telling. I think the people in the current labor leadership, for whatever reason, you have reluctance to criticize any other labor leader, uh, afraid they're going to get burnt by sticking themselves in the middle of this, maybe unclear how their own members think about this. Uh, they've been quiet. And, I, I, and you know, I think uh, that silence, you know, has to affect how the labor movement is seen by a lot of the public. And, and in the end, um, I wonder if that's going to hurt the labor movement, the fact that it has not voiced uh, its opinion on a lot of this, at least in, in some of the communities of the city. And that was Joshua Freeman, a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center, Murphy Institute, and Queens College, and also the author of an article on Bill de Blasio's New York in the current issue of Dissent. We will, of course, link to his article and his other work at the Dissent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at dissentmagazine.org. And of course, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the podcast. Arg! I wish I'd written that. So my arg for this week is in Labor Notes. It is written by Samantha Winslow, and it is an interesting expose on the world of 
online schools. Now, we might be familiar with um, the MOOCs and the different types of distance learning that are uh, becoming all the vogue in uh, post-secondary education. So, you know, you see these college classes online and these other things like that. Um, but what you might not have noticed is that with the increasing privatization of public schools, there are a number of school districts across the country that are actually dabbling in this sort of online schooling for K through 12. Now, this opens up all sorts of interesting questions about what happens to the labor that goes into teaching these kids and what their uh, labor conditions are basically like because, frankly, this is kind of the Wild West of public education. Um, if you thought charters were an unregulated territory, think about what it's like to be a teacher in an online school where you never even get to see your students face-to-face, -face, and you might be teaching an unlimited number of students at one time virtually. And, um, you know, the, there are regular things like working hours and overtime and other issues like that don't really apply because you're in this strange sort of digital liminal space. Well, teachers at California Virtual Academies uh, realize that their conditions are quite troublesome and are actually impacting the quality of education that they're able to bring to students. And so after um, many months of being exploited under uh, what they call you know, extremely stressful and exploitative working conditions for ill-paying jobs, uh, you know, they decided to organize. And um, the Labor Notes story kind of tracks how the system works. Um, it's basically made for uh, homeschoolers, um, but the teachers who are hired for this, they provide online support and they go over lesson plans with kids. And it's managed by K-12, through which bills itself as the nation's largest for-profit charter management corporation and curriculum supplier, whatever that means. So the teachers, after running, uh, having a couple of run-ins with the administration and getting really frustrated with um, you know, these high-pressure schedules and the unresponsive management, decided to organize with the California Teachers Association. Uh, earlier uh, in 2014, a majority of the 750 teachers, Labor Notes reports, signed unionization petitions, and the union filed with the State Labor Relations Board in May. Teachers report uh, that management has actually disciplined one union activist for raising concerns in a meeting and terminated another. So, you know, this is a dilemma for schools that are operating outside of this brick-and-mortar traditional public school system. Um, you know, for one thing, the quality of education suffers, and another thing is that teachers have no way of organizing. They may not even really know each other or interact with each other in a physical space. So these teachers have managed to reach out to the California Teachers Association and Labor Notes reports they're also experimenting with creative forms of labor organizing. For instance, they're utilizing online tools and social media to appraise each other of their working conditions and to make each other aware of their rights. And so this might open up some interesting space for teacher organizing in the cloud. So stay tuned for more on that. And if they get a virtual teachers union, then I guess the uh, possibilities are limitless. Virtual unions, it's coming. From virtual unions to, well, other things people do on the internet while at work. <laughs> My ARG piece this week is by friend of the podcast, Lindsay Beierstein. I'm surprised hasn't been a guest yet. We'll have to rectify that. It is called Slacking Workers of the World Unite. It is it in these times. And it is a review of 
sorts of the book Empty Labor, Idleness and Workplace Resistance by Roland Paulson, who is a Swedish scholar who interviewed 43 workers who claim to spend less than half of their time they spend at their jobs actually doing work. What's interesting here is we hear a lot about, you know, sort of stolen time in, in both directions as labor people, right? We talk about it in terms of wage theft most of the time, I guess. But when we talked about the Amazon warehouse workers who were being required to hang around for 30 minutes or so after their shift to be searched, and in terms of what kind of control your employer has over you and what kind of things your employer can demand you do while they have control over your time, it's kind of interesting to think about the reverse and think about whether slacking off at work um, is, you know, some people would say stealing time from the employer. Um, I would say more power to you. But there's some interesting stuff in here just in terms of what is entailed in being a successful slacker. Um, Apparently, doing nothing while at work, Paulson writes, can be a very demanding activity requiring planning, collaboration, risk calculation, and ethical consideration. Some of the people he spoke to said their jobs were so miserable or so meaningless that they felt compelled to do something, anything, play Farmville, download porn in order to endure them. Others said they wasted time at work to get back at an abusive boss. We all know that story. Or a firm that stole their wages. So there we go. But is slacking actually resistance? Beierstein, of course, brings up the strategy of the old industrial workers of the world, and perhaps the new industrial workers of the world as well, who considered shirking part of their strategy for eliminating the wage labor system entirely. Today's shirking may be resistance on an individual level, but unorganized, it doesn't really accomplish that much. So rather than considering it a victory to be able to watch porn at work, shouldn't we perhaps be organizing to demand a shorter workday? Militant shirking. If I, I mean, I am all for militant organized shirking if we can uh, discuss this Shirkers further. Shirkers of the world unite! Shirkers of the world, email us at belaboreddissentmagazine.org if you want to tell us your story of resistance through laziness, or if you want to talk about police unions, or... Speaking of work slowdowns, right? Like uh, yes. Another, yeah, it's <laughs> yes, a whole well, kettle of fish. Indeed, indeed. There are so many things we could discuss on this front. You can always also tweet at us at hashtag belabored and uh, send us your ideas for future subjects we should cover. Stay tuned for episode 69. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored. Belabored.